Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA Investment Strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $157 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. We're at the end of the dog days of summer, and for those who have hit the road lately or who are just trying to stay cool with a little AC, there's one thought that's top of mind, energy costs. Oil supply falling to meet recovering global economies' demand, geopolitical machinations amid war in Europe and some of the hottest weather on record lifting natural gas prices have kept the energy sector in the spotlight for investors. Energy is the clear winner in the market year-to-date in 2022, up 45%. In the last 12 months, up 67%, and since Vaccine Monday in November 2020, up 87%. And there may be more outperformance to come. Here with me today to discuss the latest developments for upstream, midstream, and downstream energy are Chris Eads, a portfolio manager for the ClearBridge's Energy MLP Strategies, and Adam Myers, research analyst for Energy and Basic Materials. Both are new to the podcast, and I'm excited to have them with me in the booth. We'll take a look at opportunities and risks for the energy sector amid a tumultuous 2022 in today's podcast, Next Steps for the Energy Rally. Chris, Adam, welcome to the non-virtual podcast booth. Great to see you both. You too. Very happy to be here. Now, I want to talk about, obviously, oil, natural gas, the energy complex, but I think the number one thing that's on people's minds right now is paying higher prices at the pump. Recently, you paid $5 for a gallon of gasoline, record levels in the U.S., but if you go back to 2008, a barrel of oil was actually higher, approaching $150, and we never reached those levels. So I know, obviously, gasoline prices have come down, but Adam... Maybe speak to the listeners about why we're seeing record gasoline prices, but not record oil prices. Jeff, it's a great question, and especially something that is still misunderstood, not only by the general public, but was clearly a focal point among the recent congressional hearings with some of the big oil executives, right? So if we take a step back, you think about gasoline and diesel. They're both, they're obviously derivatives of oil, right? So because of that, the recent downdraft that we've seen in oil prices from $130 plus per barrel down to just under $100 per barrel, that has driven some of the weakness that you've seen from $5 per gallon down to four. But I think one of the key considerations that's often overlooked here is European natural gas prices, right? So when we talk about refining, oftentimes we'll talk about crack spreads. Crack spreads are simply the refining margin, right? And these are globalized commodities, right? So what sets the price of a commodity? the marginal cost of production. Who's the marginal cost refiner? The European refiner, right? So because natural gas prices have escalated from $7 per MMBTU all the way up to 60, to keep that marginal refiner in the money, the crack spread has been drug up with it, right? So that's why companies such as Valero have recently reported record earnings in the second quarter, more than what they've reported in a whole year previously. Wow, wow. Now, I know, obviously, energy prices have come down. It's paying $5 a gallon. Now it's, you know, four ten as we speak today. Are we going to see some relief soon? Are we going to continue to see it, some downward trends? Or is there some other things at play? I mean, I'm of the mindset that there's asymmetric upside to not only prices at the pump, but also the oil commodity price. If you take a step back and look at oil, we continue to be very tight from a supply standpoint. OPEC, very little spare capacity. They, they brought on 100,000 
barrels <laughs> dead? Yeah, th- <laughs> that they did, that they did. Not much more room to spare, right? So the point being that, look, there's still a lot of demand that's offline that could potentially recover. China, for example, million plus barrels per day that's expected to start coming back as COVID lockdowns unwind. International travel continues to recover, right? China's at 70% of where they were pre-COVID. The US and Europe are at 90% currently, right? So I'm of the mindset that just given how tight we are from a global supply and demand dynamic, that any kind of minor disruption could send us quickly back to the 130 plus dollar per barrels. Very tight energy markets. Okay, right. okay. And I would just interject so differently. I mean, if demand surprises to the upside in any region of the world going forward, and when I say going forward, let's just say the next six to 24 months, it's very unclear where the supply is gonna come from to meet that incremental demand. So China has been a ding to global demand for oil because of their COVID shutdowns. Europe has had some uh, hits to demand because of the energy crisis, from the pricing crisis in Europe. Uh, we've been very stable up here in the United States. But if any of those two regions recovered to any meaningful degree, it's very unclear where we're going to get the incremental barrels to come from. It's not likely going to come from OPEC+. Plus. We're already struggling here in the United States to meet demand, so much so that the United States government has had to release millions of barrels of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And in fact, to date, we've released around 150 million barrels of oil from the SPR since September of last year. And keep in mind that those barrels have to be put back into the SPR at some point going forward. So yes, we're supplying the market today, but we're also creating demand in the market for oil in late 23 and early 2024 to replace those barrels back into the SPR, which could be another positive catalyst for demand in a market where it's not readily obvious where the incremental barrel of supply is gonna come from. Now, given the fact that you do have this constrained supply environment and you're going to have this demand that's naturally going to be there, do you think that could be something that could incentivize some domestic producers on bringing more oil online? Because if we're going to have a U.S. recession, potentially, there's probably some reluctance to bring that supply online. Is that maybe a potential catalyst for more production? I think it almost has to be. I mean, the signal to the producers, the producers of oil, the producers of natural gas to either drill or not to drill is the price of the commodity. If the price of the commodity reaches a certain point, the returns are there to justify incremental drilling or putting more rigs to work. And for oil, based on the reports that I've read and the analysis I've done myself, you need roughly $50 a barrel looking at the forward curve for oil, looking over the next two years to ensure a return that meets your cost of capital. Which which we're well above. We are. I mean, the the forward curve, the forward two-year curve for oil is sitting in the low 80s right now. So we're well above that, despite the fact that oil prices have pulled back here over the last four to six weeks. For natural gas, you need something in the three to 350 range, and the forward curve right now is at 575. And because of those price levels and the returns that are definitely there, the rig counts are rebounding. They're not surging the way we might have seen in prior uh, energy cycles, but they're definitely increasing. I'll just give, I'll give you some stats to give you a feel for it. So before the pandemic, there were 685 rigs drilling for oil. That fell off a cliff all the way down to 172 within six months of the pandemic. So 172 started. total? Yes. Wow. And it's since rebounded to 600. So it's still 12% below the level it was before the pandemic, but we've seen a meaningful increase of the number of rigs off the bottom. And with that, we're starting to see, albeit slowly, an increase in U.S. oil production specifically. But then you look at natural gas, and it's an even more positive story. So we had 120 rigs drilling before the pandemic for natural gas. That dropped down to 68, but it's rebounded to 161. 
So it's now 34% above the level before the pandemic. And not surprisingly, we're seeing natural gas production levels today that are actually higher than what we saw before the pandemic began. Oil's not quite there yet. It's still, uh, it's rebounded. We, we started at 13 million barrels a day. We dropped down to 10 million barrels a day and we've rebounded to 12. So we're still around 1 million barrels a day or 8% below the levels we saw before the pandemic when it looks at oil production. But certainly a rising rig count is the best leading indicator for what production trends are going to be over the course of the next 3 to 12 months. And all of those things, to me, indicate that production is going to continue to rebound, which will only be to the benefit of many of the companies that Adam and I are investing in. So there's a couple of different points that I'd make. First, Chris is right on the money in that oil producer, specifically in the Permian, that make the decision to bring on a well today, that well will pay back in the first three to six months with oil prices at 90 plus dollars per barrel. Wow. Right. So pretty much the first two quarters that they bring it on. Second is there's a difference between the publics and the privates, right? If we think about the public EMPs, they continue to voice support for capital discipline model, free cash flow, cash returns to shareholders, keeping production growth kind of in the mid-single digit range. Because, you know, everybody saw what happened in 2014 through 16, right? That's right, when they were spending 140 plus percent of cash flow, not delivering an economic return. So I continue to be of the mindset that this new capital discipline business model is going to deliver the returns that investors are looking for, and that investors are going to keep the public's feet to the fire on this one, right? But there's a dichotomy between what the publics are doing and what the privates are doing. The privates, classic game theory, should be cheating, growing double digits, getting that outsized return because the publics are essentially stuck to their, their differentiated story. So with that said, the ability to grow production is actually pretty restricted here, right? If we think about oil field service companies, unlike prior cycles, they're not adding capacity to the same degree that they were previously. So because of that, lead times to get new equipment in some cases, is, is in excess of a year. So even if investors blessed more production growth, even if they were looking to cr- increase double digits, their ability to do so, especially quickly, is restrained. So I want to talk about, obviously, why energy is up so much year to date over the last year since the beginning of the end of the pandemic profits, right? I'm seeing record profits for the oil giants. What's really behind that? Is it that discipline that, that you guys talked about, higher energy prices, you know, break that down a little bit for, for some of the oil giants. Yeah, so I guess if we, if we narrow in on Chevron and Exxon, for example, both delivered pretty robust beats for Chevron. It was about a 17% EPS beat, specifically driven by the downstream, right? Crack spreads in the United States escalated to 70 plus dollars per barrel. And, and they're usually what, 10 to 10 20? to 12 is yeah. what we know to be, to be normal, right? So that certainly drove the beat. And so what the core thematic has been is, okay, what are we going to do with the free cash flow? And so companies such as Chevron re-upped their buyback to $15 billion versus 5 to $10 billion earlier in the year. You saw a number of large cap EMPs such as Pioneer deliver strong free cash flow beats and deliver nearly 100% of free cash flow back to shareholders with fixed plus variable dividends and buybacks, right? So it's still very much a thematic of overwhelming the investor with these free cash returns. And we are not seeing, we're not seeing the public's chase with production growth yet. And I think the key word here, when you think about energy companies, whether it's upstream, midstream, or downstream, is free cash flow. And that's a very different dynamic than what we've seen in prior cycles. And I've been through, for better or for worse, dozens of cycles over the course of my career. And this is different from that perspective. And those are dangerous words to say, talking in any investment context. (laughs) But the difference today is, again, whether it's midstream, upstream, or downstream, is the free cash flow generation is real. And they're actually in a position now to either reduce debt, 
increase their payouts to investors and or execute share buybacks. And that's a very different dynamic for the energy sector. When you look at the midstream sector, which is what my portfolios invest in, these are the companies that transport, store, and process crude oil and natural gas products. We went from before the pandemic, they were barely earning their dividends or distributions that they paid out to investors. They had high levels of leverage on their balance sheet. So when the pandemic came about, they suddenly had to slash their dividends and the focus quickly became on debt reduction. So you roll the calendar forward here now almost three years uh, since the pandemic began, and the companies are now in a position where they've reduced their balance sheets enormously. They're more than two times earning their dividends or distributions that they're paying to investors, and they're now starting to execute share buybacks and increasing their dividends or distributions again. It's a very, very different business model, and it's all centered around free cash flow. And the way I think analysts and uh, portfolio managers evaluate midstream companies has changed over the last three years. It used to be more on the yield or the dividends that they were paying out to investors. Now it's much more on free cash flow and exactly what that means for uh, these companies and their investors going forward. Now, I'm going to stick with midstream for a second here. Obviously, if you're potentially going to get some more drilling, your rig counts are up. They need to hit from point A to point B. That's obviously the, the midstream space. Obviously, we think that there's going to be more wells drilled. Is you know, There's going to be a lot more volume going through those pipes to, to help juice midstream even more from a free cash flow generation standpoint? My, my quick take on that is yes. And Adam, I, I view this a little bit differently. Adam's looking at publicly traded oil and gas production companies. And that's only around, what, Adam, 40% of the market? That's fair. Yeah. So, I mean, 60% of the market are actually private operators. That can be you know small mom and pops. It can be private equity, or it can just be smaller companies that are not yet public. So, I'm looking at the entire to the upstream, not just the publicly traded companies. And when, when you take that vantage point and you take into account the rather steady week-in, week-out increases in the drilling activity, as well as the reality that production volumes are increasing, they're not surging, but they are increasing for all three of the primary uh, energy commodities, oil, natural gas, and natural gas liquids, I think I've got a pretty good line of sight of visibility into production growth, at least extending through 2023 and perhaps longer, depending on the demand recovery with all the variables going on with the war with Europe and China as well. So yes, I think energy volumes are going to continue to increase in the United States. And when you look at crude oil specifically, and as we alluded to at the beginning of the call, I mean, the real question on a global basis is, where does the incremental barrel of oil on a global basis come from to meet incremental demand? It almost by definition has to be an American U.S. barrel. I mean, OPEC does not have the spare capacity that, that I think they're advertising to the market. Yeah, that's a common belief out there. Obviously, Russia is... Certainly. I mean, OPEC's been to, OPEC Plus has been talking about raising production monthly for, what, out of the last nine months? I mean, plus or minus. And they're not hitting the production increase numbers that they're talking about. So there's, there's something there that should tell the market that they don't have the spare capacity that they're advertising, which again means in any sort of a demand, further demand recovery, and we've already had an enormous demand recovery off the bottom from the pandemic, that U.S. oil is going to be in demand. And that should only further public and private producers to continue allocating capital to the space. And I say this frequently, and sometimes I feel like it's uh, repeating myself too much. But if the returns are there, the capital is going to find a way to drill these wells. And the returns are there. I understand the public companies need to assure investors that they're not going to chase the uh, commodity price cycle. Nonetheless, and they have been very measured and very disciplined about it thus far, the reality is the rig counts are increasing and production volumes should very well follow with that, at least through the balance of this year and, and into 2023. And the longer that we have energy prices at these levels, the more profitability you'll see, the more free cash flow generation, the more incentive to go back into a space that 
you know, over the last decade has been tough space. Well, I, definitely. I, for sure. Let me just add one more point about midstream and, and, and then we can turn it over to Adam if he has anything else to say about it. So what's interesting about midstream is production volumes are increasing, but there's not a lot of large need to spend capital to facilitate moving or processing these growing barrels of oil. So oil was at 13 million barrels a day, as I said before, uh, before the pandemic. It currently sits at 12. The U.S. infrastructure system is more or less set up to handle 15 million barrels a day of oil. So there's not a lot of capital that needs to be spent for the midstream companies to see surging cash flows and very little capital required to realize those cash flows. Very different model than before the pandemic. And in fact, capital spending from midstream companies on pipelines and processing plants and things like that stood around 45 to $50 million a year for three or four years before the pandemic. It's currently sitting around 20 to 25 million barrel or billion dollars this year, and that's likely a level that's going to hold going forward. So limited capital spending with growing volumes equals growing cash flows, which equals growing free cash flows, which I think is going to be the key driver for these stocks to make another move higher beyond how well they've performed year to date or on a trailing one-year basis. So there's one key point that I would like to add to corroborate a lot of the things that Chris is saying. If we think about global supply, one key difference this time around is that 60% plus of the overall supply chain is linked to short cycle, high decline barrels versus before 2010, less than 40%. So what does that mean? Obviously, a lot of concerns out there as it pertains to recession. Look what happened in 2020. You had U.S. production fell off a cliff from 13 million barrels. And to Chris's point, we have still yet to get that back. So if we entered a similar recessionary scenario, you may not get all of that production back. And so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy to some degree. We need more capital allocated to oil and gas to ultimately meet demand, which has yet to peak globally. Now, I want to turn over to, obviously, an area of opportunity, potentially, which is natural gas. Looking over Europe, natural gas prices are about 10 times as high as we have here in the U.S., so there's clearly a shortage. Is that a big opportunity for U.S. energy providers, and what kind of players are lined up to benefit from this? It's a great question. Ultimately, we think it's a huge opportunity for the U.S. natural gas players, really for two core reasons. We put out a white paper for our dividend strategy recently showing just how competitive the Marcellus is from a cost of supply standpoint versus the rest of the globe. We're talking about break-evens as low as $2 per MMBTU, lower in some cases, versus the rest of the globe that can have upwards of double digits per MMBTU, right? So payback very quickly. And the other caveat here is from an emission standpoint, they're differentiated as well. They're better than Russia, better than Qatar, UAE, Saudi Arabia. And so with that said, the LNG buyers made it clear that they care about the emissions profile of the LNG that they're buying, right? So we are of the view that there will be a big U.S. LNG build out and that companies such as EQT, Chesapeake, deep inventories in the Marcellus as well as the Haynesville will be able to support that build out. And those are the producers. There's other beneficiaries as well. And to add on to Adam's comments, I completely agree with them. But everyone should also understand this is a long-dated opportunity. This is not going to happen overnight. LNG facilities are multi-billion dollar projects that take many years to build and ultimately start delivering product to wherever they're going to be exported to. So, yes, the producers are certainly going to benefit, the ones that have exposure in the Marcellus Shell Play, which underlies basically the state of Pennsylvania. But there's infrastructure companies that will benefit as well. That gas has to be moved from the Marcellus to an LNG liquefaction plant before it's exported, most likely as we see it today, to Europe. But again, those are long-dated opportunities, but certainly the longer-term outlook for natural gas, U.S. natural gas on a global basis, is perhaps as rosy as it's been over the course of my career. And to Chris's point, 
the key challenge here has been pipeline infrastructure. Historically, there's been a lot of opposition, but we're starting to see some falling amongst government, right? The recent Manchin-Schumer climate bill could ultimately introduce more streamlined permitting for some of this infrastructure. Uh, we'll see how that plays out. So the, uh, <laughs> the, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is in the midst of, of working itself through Congress, there was an agreement with Manchin for him to sign on to this that at some point, it seems likely in September, that there would be separate legislation put forth to introduce more streamlined regulations to getting pipelines built in the United States, including natural gas and including the uh, pipelines that underline uh, Manchin's state of West Virginia. There's almost no details on this, and I'm a little skeptical because you're heading right into an election as this is being proposed, but that's the chatter right now in Washington. But certainly that would be welcomed by all in the energy sector, most specifically the upstream and midstream companies. And in sticking with the Inflation Reduction Act, mm-hmm. obviously passed the Senate here, passed this, the House, probably a decent probability that that will take place. Ultimately, is this a path to more oil and gas production in the U.S.? And then also kind of sticking with that, is the per ton tax on major oil and gas producers for methane leaks something that's going to be included in that, who does that necessarily affect? And does that create maybe a, a competitive edge for an area in the, the energy space? Right. So if we dream the dream and believe that we're going to get the natural gas pipelines that ultimately are going to unlock this low-cost natural gas resource up in Pennsylvania, I do believe that it could unlock more production growth that is blessed by investors of public equities, really just due to the fact that it would be supporting this secular growth initiative as it pertains to LNG, not only helping Europe displace Russian natural gas, but also helping displace the globe's reliance on coal, right? So I think that you could ultimately see a dichotomy between the oil companies that are kind of held to mid-single-digit growth and natural gas companies that could return, arguably, to even higher growth rates than that. There's discussion about a methane fee on excess, you know, excess methane above, I believe it's 25,000 metric tons, right? We're talking about a $900 per ton starting in 2024, moving higher than that. The one point that I would make is that many upstream producers, especially natural gas upstream producers, have really gotten ahead of this, right? They've invested in something that's called pneumatic device replacement. Essentially, these are leaky valves, they're controllers that historically have run off of natural gas that you can switch to being electrical or even running on compressed air. Why does this matter? It sounds insignificant. Well, it actually can cut the methane emissions of upstream producers in half, right, with very little investment, right? So take EQT, for example, investing $20 to replace, I think it's over 8,000 of these pneumatic devices. That's less than 1% of their cash flow this year. So minimal cost and big impact on methane. And the exact same thing is true with the pipeline companies or the midstream companies. I mean, methane is very easy to escape the older built pipelines, and these pneumatic valves can be easily and readily addressed. And the U.S. pipeline companies, the midstream companies, are definitely addressing this, in part because they're trying to do something for the better good, of course. But there's economics of it as well. I mean, the less methane that's uh, released from their pipelines, it's the more natural gas that they'll be selling on the other end of their pipeline system. So it helps both. And the other thing I would add here is from an ES&G, ESG perspective, midstream has changed. In the last three years, midstream companies have gone from basically not even wanting to talk about ESG and certainly not having any disclosures on it to it being a focal point of almost every conference call that the public companies do with uh, with investors on a quarterly basis. And part of their story that they're conveying to investors is the low-hanging fruit is it's easy and it's numerous. There's so many of these valves that can be replaced at such a low cost. And to Adam's point, has such an enormous impact on their methane releases. They're doing it and they'll continue to do this for, for likely years to come. All right, so we're running up on time here, but there's one last question that I think everybody listening wants to 
get some perspective on, which is recession, right? You've seen a humongous drop in oil and the commodity complex over the course of the last, you know, call it two months. Is there any concerns that you know, the markets are starting to price in a potential U.S. recession? Is that more perception or, or reality? Or are there other things that are driving prices lower from here? I mean, certainly that's part of the fear that's that, that's driven oil prices from, and we got to as high as, I, I believe, 120, and we've dropped down to uh, 90-ish as we're sitting here doing this podcast, part of that is, is fears of recession. Part of that is the demand impacts that we talked about in China and in Europe. And the other part of it, we referenced it as well, is we're releasing almost a million barrels a day of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And those barrels were intended to do exactly what's happening, which is moderating the price of oil. So yes, that's part of the equation, but I don't think that's the entire equation for why oil has pulled back here over the last four to six weeks. Yeah, if we just hone in directly on the U.S. market, there's been a lot of fixation over the EIA data showing gasoline demand of at least 10% versus the last year. You know, if we just shift gears and focus directly on the U.S. market, the Department of Energy numbers have been causing, there's been a lot of fixation specifically on them because they're showing gasoline demand 10% year over year, right? That's been part of the weakness that Chris is alluding to. One of the points that I'll make there is there is a lot of discussion out there that that data could be arguably be inaccurate and subject to revision going forward. Is it normally subject to revision? That's right. Okay. That's right. And the reason for that is because if you look at alternative sources such as Gas Buddy, which tend to follow consumer behavior at the pump very closely, they're actually showing growth. Second is big U.S. refiners such as Valero are reporting with their recent earnings that they're not seeing any demand destruction yet. So that's all, all that to say that we could certainly see a, a positive revision to U.S. gasoline demand that quells some of the fears of recession. If I could just add one thing here. So, I mean, the fear of recession. I mean, what does a recession mean for the oil markets outside of the pandemic, which is obviously just an outlier, hopefully? Typically, when you have a recession, oil demand on a global basis will decline by half a percent to one percent. The worst number on record was what happened in 2008 into 2009, and that was a two percent reduction in demand. So let's just be very pessimistic here and say we're going to go through a 2008-2009 type recession in terms of uh, global oil demand. That would be roughly a two million barrel a day reduction in oil on a daily basis in terms of demand. Well, I mean, we could more than offset half of that just by having to put oil back into the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. So there's some natural offsets as we look at over the next two to three years. And investors do need to understand that recession doesn't mean that oil demand falls by 15%. It's typically a much, much smaller number than that. And given the supply constraints that we talked about before, I don't think we're setting ourselves up for an oil price collapse even if we go through some sort of a recession here over the coming quarters. Well, I hope we don't see an 08 recession again, but given the health of the consumer, that household leverage is at 50-year uh, lows at the moment, business balance sheets are in really good condition, and the banks are not overextended, I think we would get a mild recession if we get any recession at all. Well, that's all the time that we have. I know that I've learned quite a bit in this podcast. So Chris and Adam, I want to thank you here for joining me in the non-virtual podcast booth. So thanks for coming. Thank you, Jeff. Enjoyed it. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for listening to this update from the ClearBridge podcast. We hope you continue to have a healthy and happy summer and hope you'll join us in September for the next ClearBridge podcast. Take care. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of August 8th, 2022. It may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice.
Any statistics referenced have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information.